Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer podcast. Look, with cancer comes uncertainty. Often, you don't really know what's going on, and yet you have to make decisions over things that you don't really understand. So, how do you know what's happening? How do you know what is the best option for you when it comes to treatment? Is a clinical trial, is that the right way to go? These are really just some of the things that we're talking about today with David, who is a radiation oncologist and who also wrote a fantastic book called Taking Charge of Cancer. David, you say that taking charge of your treatment can really improve your chances. So what does it mean to you? So taking charge of your treatment can help to make sure that you are getting the best possible cancer treatment. We know that across the world, there are big differences in quality of cancer treatment. And by making sure that you are getting access to your medical records, understanding your medical records, making sure that you're getting the best high volume surgeons or radiation doctors, you can really make sure that nothing is missed and that things are proceeding as they, as they should. Unfortunately, sometimes in the media, we hear stories of cancer treatment gone wrong. One example of that is not too far from where I am. There were a couple of breast cancer patients who had mastectomies. They had their breasts removed, only to find out afterwards that they didn't have cancer at all, that the original biopsy that was done before the mastectomy was done didn't show cancer, but the report was misread by their surgeon. And obviously, that's very tragic. And it's something that we could avoid if we can start empowering patients to do things to take charge of their cancer, like getting their pathology reports and, and learning to understand them. And that's what the book really does. It's meant to be a guidebook on how to take those steps how to understand these reports that are written in a language that many of us don't work with on a daily basis. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic point you make, David. So what's, what are the sorts of things that, as a patient, you should watch out for in the report, in the medical report? Well, I think the first thing is to, is to know which medical reports are, are needed. And really, the important reports are the reports from imaging. So if you have a CT scan or if you have an MRI scan, getting the report from that and also getting the report from the pathology. And the pathology report is something that's, that's written if you've had a biopsy or if you've had a surgery. And when you've had a biopsy or a surgery, the specimen that they take is sent to a doctor called the pathologist who looks at the, at the specimen under a microscope and issues a report. And all of the treatment stems from the pathology report and the, and the imaging for most, most patients. So along with those two reports, Usually when you meet your doctor for, a first, for the first time, they, they also write a report, which we call a consultation report. And in that consultation report, they will summarize everything, everything that's going on. That's a fantastic tool, if you can get a copy of that, to understand your type of cancer, the stage that you're at, and what the goals of treatment are. Some hospitals now have a situation where, or a setup where you can log in and you can access your reports online. At other centers, you have to go and get them printed off, which can come with a cost. But I find that many people, when they get copies of their reports, they really like having them. And what I often do when I see a patient who has had a scan, let's say they've had a, a CT scan, I'll bring their report in with them and I'll underline the important things and I'll give them that copy. Then they can know exactly what's going on. 
Yeah, exactly. That's such a great point, David. And you know, that's something that's always made me feel uncomfortable, you know, like the fact that the person who's kind of decided my fate, you know, at various points of, of, you know, of the cancer journey is the pathologist, the person I never see and I never talk to, you know. Right, right, right. And, and, you know, in some situations, it's pretty uncommon for a pathologist to reach out to the patient directly, but um, sometimes radiologists do that. If there's a, when someone has a scan, sometimes a radiologist will come out and, and, and talk to them. And I think, you know, the world has changed, medicine has changed, and people are much more informed and they're much more empowered. And I'll, I'll give you an example of how these, these things can, can change. Shortly after I wrote the book, I went in with one of my patients who'd had a scan of his brain, and that scan was looking for cancer. And I had read the report and then I went into the room and I said to him, you know, the, the scan was fine. There's no sign of any cancer in your brain. And he said, oh, okay, can I have a copy of the report? I said, okay. So I hadn't printed it yet. So I went back out and printed it and brought it in and I brought it in and I went through it with him. And, and one thing that I had missed is that even though there was no cancer there, the report had said, oh, by the way, we see a small aneurysm that needs to be looked into. And so an aneurysm is, a, is an issue with a blood vessel that in some cases can be quite serious. And even though I'd really tried to provide the best quality of care, I had just been so focused on, you know, is there cancer, is there not cancer, that I hadn't read right to the end of the report. And I had missed that. And so that by going over that with him, I was able to take a second look at the report and I sent him off to have that aneurysm taken care of. So it can really it can really make a difference to get copies of these reports. Yeah, that's fantastic, David. And it just makes such a huge difference as you, you gave in that example. So David, so when you're sitting down with the patient and, and maybe you're talking about uh, your report or your diagnosis, maybe you're deciding which kind of road to take with treatment. So um, how do you know that the advice your special gives you is, is, is really the best one for you and for your situation? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I think the first thing to do is to is to know what the goals of the care are before we even talk about knowing that it's the right approach for you is is to understand what the goal is. Is the goal of treatment to get rid of the cancer, meaning to cure it, or is the goal of treatment just to slow things down, knowing that a cancer is incurable because unfortunately, of course, some cancers are incurable. And what we find is that a lot of times we're not doing a good job of informing patients of the goals of treatment. There was a, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago where they asked patients who were getting chemotherapy, what is the goal of the chemotherapy? Is it meant to cure your cancer or is it meant to slow things down? And about three quarters of the patients who answered that question said that the goal of the chemo was to provide a chance of cure. But when they designed the study, all the patients that they were asking these questions to were patients who were getting chemotherapy that was not meant to cure their cancer. So these patients were all getting chemotherapy to slow things down, not to cure it, but three quarters of them had the opposite impression. And I think that's a failure on the part of our, our medical system of us as physicians that we're not doing a great job of communicating the goals because once you know the goals, it can have you make a better judgment about how aggressive you want to be. Often when the goal is for, for cure, then people will be more aggressive. You know, I myself, if I had cancer, if the goal was for cure, then I would want to go all out because we're looking at a long life expectancy if you're successful. But if the goal of care is to slow things down, maybe buy you a few extra months, then in my mind and in many people's mind, you start looking a lot more about into short-term quality of life and, and, and side effects. But I think if you're really wondering if someone's recommending the right treatment for you, um, the best thing is a second opinion. And I'll tell you some ways that you can get second opinions without even seeing a physician. 
But for a lot of cancers, there are many options. And Joe, I know that you are well-versed in cancer, so you'll know the story of prostate cancer, how for some men you can have active surveillance, sometimes you can have surgery, sometimes you can have internal and external radiation. There are so many different options, right? And how do you know which one is best for you? And the best way is to get a second opinion. And a, a great way to get second opinions is something called a tumor board. And what a tumor board is, it's a team huddle where doctors who treat a certain kind of cancer all get together. And there'll be different kinds of doctors. So at a prostate cancer tumor board, for example, there will be surgeons, there'll be radiation doctors, there'll be chemotherapy doctors, who we call medical oncologists. And at tumor boards, the whole group discusses a case. And usually what happens is they have a radiologist to look again at the imaging, and they have a pathologist to look again at the biopsy. So everything is looked at a second time, and then the group discusses the treatment options. And at many centers, particularly you know at big bigger centers, they will have tumor boards, and it's free of charge to have your case discussed there. You know, in the UK, from what I'm told, it's required that all patients be discussed at a tumor board. So if you're a patient with a new diagnosis of cancer, you could ask your physician, please, can you present my case to a tumor board? And then the tumor board will discuss your case, and they'll either come back and say, yeah, we agree with the original recommendation, which was, let's say it was for surgery. They'll say, oh, we agree with that. That's a great recommendation. Or they'll say, oh, you know, we thought of a couple other options that might be reasonable. Or sometimes they say, hey, you know, we found something that slightly changed, either in the pathology or on the imaging. And that happens in about 10 or 20% of cases that when they go to the tumor board, something changes about the diagnosis, about what they see on the scans. So sometimes it can have a big impact, but even if it doesn't, if the tumor board comes back and says, hey, we agree with the recommendation, then you really have a lot of faith that the recommendation was the right one because you've had this second and even third and fourth and fifth opinions because there are a lot of doctors on the tumor board. Yeah, that's such a fantastic point, David. And also because you get perspective from uh, people in different fields. Uh, you, as you said, you know, maybe it's a surgeon, maybe it's a medical oncologist, maybe it's a radiation oncologist who's there as well. Maybe, you know, it's uh, other specialists in there as well. So you really kind of get all your bases covered. That's right. And and I know that you know this very well, Joe, but there are these biases in, in, in medicine, in cancer treatment, where doctors tend to recommend the treatments that they give themselves. So I, I, as a radiation doctor, I know that I'm biased to recommend radiation and surgeons tend to recommend surgery. And I don't think it's anything sinister. I think it's just that we believe in what we do. Um, but what can happen is if a patient is sent to me first, to a radiation doctor, you know, I would give them all the the the, uh, the choices. But in some cases, we're a bit blinded to what the other choices might be. And really getting a, an opinion from a different specialist can really be helpful. So one thing I say in my book is that if a surgeon is recommending surgery, you should ask them, is radiation an option for me? And if it is, can I meet with a radiation doctor? And vice versa, if you're meeting a radiation doctor and they say, oh, you know, radiation is recommended, say, well, what about surgery? Is that an option? Can I talk to a surgeon? And sometimes they'll say, well, no, it's not an option because of this and this and this. Or they might say, yeah, that's a great idea. And then it just gives you a sense of confidence that you are getting the best treatment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's such an empowering thing to do as well. You know, when I was kind of deciding on my treatment, my medical oncologist sent me on to have a conversation with a radiation oncologist to see if it was the right option. And initially it was kind of scary because I thought, well, uh, aren't you just supposed to tell me what to do? But then I realized that it's it's such an empowering thing of really looking at your options, talking to different specialists, and then you make the decision about what's going on in your treatment. Because sometimes with 
I guess with cancer treatment, you kind of lose control over how things are. And being in a position where you are the one makes a decision is, is a really good place to be in. Absolutely. And we are in a world now where patients want to make decisions, as I think they should. I think 30 years ago, medicine was very paternalistic and you were told, hey, this is what, you, this is what the recommendation is going to be and this is what you need to do. And patients were expected just to nod and listen. But I think people are much, in all walks of life, in all, all areas of society, people are much stronger advocates, which I think is very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. And also, David, you know, as, a, as from personal experience and from speaking to lots of people who, who went through cancer, I know that often, like, the worst time for, for a patient is it was when you're waiting for results from a scan or a test. Um, it's, it's just really nerve-wracking. So how do you take charge of that situation? And what do you do there? That is a difficult situation, Joe. The two most anxiety-provoking times are, are the time before treatment when you have a diagnosis of cancer, but you don't know how it's going to be treated. You don't know how the treatment's going to go. I find that's a very, very anxious time. And then the time right before a scan result. Even in the days leading up to the scan, people tend to start to lose sleep, and then the scan is done, and then you have a few days until you have it reported. And there, there really is no way to speed that up. You know, in some scenarios, like I said, if you have access to your chart, you can log in and, and read the scan report even before your appointment. But the other way is really just making the most of that time. Because if the scan, let's say you have the scan on Monday and the report's not going to be available for a few days and you meet your oncologist the next day, that time can't be shortened. And so I try to tell people to, be, to try to practice some mindfulness techniques where they, they ground themselves and say, okay, you know, the scan is just going to tell me, tell me what's already going on. It's better for me to know than, than not to know. And come what may, we'll, we, will, we will do our best. And just because I'm having a scan doesn't mean that, that, that we're going to find something because most of the time, I would say on average, scans done in follow-up don't show anything. But that might be a bit of anxiety that can never be fully eliminated. Um, and even I know people who've been you know, out from treatment coming up to five years and the chances of being cured are already in the high 90% for some of these cancers. But even then, the anxiety is there. So I don't think we'll ever fully get rid of it, but it's more about trying to manage that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, David, when you're about to start treatment, again, it's also scary because you really don't know what to expect. So uh, how do you deal with that? Like, what advice do you have on that front? Yeah, so I would say there are two things to to keep in mind. Often people feel extremely rushed to get into treatment, and, and sometimes there are delays in situations where things need to really, really be rushed. But for most patients, there is time to collect information and to make a decision that's best for you. So for the example of a man with an early stage prostate cancer, there's certainly time to to make a decision because for many men, even just doing surveillance is an option. So there's really not a rush. You know, some cancers unfortunately present with more extreme life-threatening situations where something has to be done quickly, but a lot of times there is the opportunity to uh, sit and think and, and get the information and get your chart and, 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 and make a good decision for yourself. But the other thing that can often be quite helpful during that time is speaking with somebody who has been through it. Many cancer centers have uh, programs where you can meet with some survivors who've been through the situation. You may have some friends or family who've been through it, but also there's a organization there are some organizations online that will connect you with somebody. And I'm not, not actually sure what's available in Australia specifically, but there are, you know, in Canada and in the U.S., 
One is called the Cancer Hope Network, and they will connect you with a survivor of your type of cancer. So if you ha if you have a lung cancer and you're going through chemo and radiation, they'll connect you with someone who's been through there through that to tell you what it's going to be all about. And that I find can be quite helpful because then you can see what is on the horizon for you, hopefully. Yeah, I know, David, it can make such a huge difference. That's really great advice because you really, and in that case, you're talking to someone who, who like, who's been in your shoes, who's, who's potentially, you know, went through the treatment you're about to go through right now and had to make similar sorts of decisions. I had to deal with side effects. So it's really the best place to be when you're kind of combining the expertise of your, your medical specialist and your medical team with really real-world experience of someone who's been down that road before. Right, exactly. And, and just knowing someone who's been there can be very, very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. David, I know we touched on this before, but how do you really find the right surgeon or the right hospital to do, to do the operation if, if that's the road you're going down? Yeah, that's a great question. I think people have had the feeling in the past that medicine is one-stop shopping. You go in, you meet a surgeon or you meet a radiation doctor, and you go for it and you get what you get and, and you're going to have good care. But we know that there is actually a lot of a lot of variation. It's not like craft dinner where you can go to I don't know if they even sell craft dinner in Australia, but you go to the you go to the grocery store and you buy your prepackaged dinner and whether you buy it in one store or another or one country or another, it's pretty much gonna be the same product. This is this is a lot different. It's more if you think about going to see a musician where some might be fantastic and some might not be quite so good. There are a lot of tricks towards finding somebody who is quite good, and I go through some of these in my book, but one of the things that I think is very easy to ask about is whether you are seeing a high-volume doctor and whether you're, the cancer hospital you're going to is a high-volume center. And what I mean by that, being a high-volume center, is a center that treats your kind of cancer a lot or a surgeon that does your type of operation a lot because we know that across a whole bunch of different cancer surgeries, Surgeons who do it a lot and hospitals who do it a lot get much better outcomes. It's just the idea of practice making. Practice makes perfect. And as an example of this, in the U.S., for example, if you are having your esophagus taken out, which is your swallowing tube, your esophagus for esophagus cancer, if you go to a high-volume surgeon, someone who's doing it a lot, your chance of dying from that surgery, chances of dying from that surgery are about 8%, which is actually a fairly high risk. It's, a, I guess, a significant risk, but we take that risk because that's the way to cure the cancer. And in some patients who go through that surgery, they will be cured and live out the rest of their lives. But if you were to go to a low-volume surgeon, someone who's not doing it very often, the risk of dying from the surgery is not 8%. It's about 22%. So the, the numbers go up dramatically just because of the expertise at the center. So I think the one question you can ask your surgeon is, are you considered a high-volume surgeon for, for this kind of cancer? And if you don't read the book and don't read more about it, and they say no, you can say, well, is this a surgery where you think a high-volume surgeon would be important? It seems to make a big difference for the more complicated surgery. So the more complicated the surgery, the riskier it is, the more that having a high-volume surgeon would really help. So it's certainly a question you can ask very easily. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's such a staggering difference that it can make to, to your survival. So I'm really great that you can point out uh, the difference that it can make and the things to look out for. So David, what's your take on clinical trials? And, and how do you know if a clinical trial is, is the right option for you? 
yeah, Joe, clinical trials are incredibly important. As part of my research, I, I run clinical trials, and I can actually just give you an example of, of a big impact that, that we've had with a clinical trial. But basically, clinical trials are where all the new cutting-edge treatments are tested before they're brought into mainstream. So a clinical trial is sort of like an experiment. And, and it's not that people are being treated like a guinea pig. That's not the way it is at all. What's happening is that doctors think that they might have an improvement on treatment and a clinical trial might be a way for you to get a treatment that doctors think will be better but haven't yet proven it. And sometimes you go on a clinical trial and you get a drug or a treatment that it proves to be much, much better. So you've benefited from going on the trial because you've got that new drug. But the other benefit of going on a trial is that you get, I think, much better care. And the reason why you get better care is two things. One is that usually you have a, a trial coordinator who's in touch with you or a trials nurse who's in touch with you, and it serves as your point of contact. So when you have an issue with your care at all, your contact is this, is this primary nurse or this trial coordinator. So it's a sort of an inside track to getting help if you need it anywhere along the way. But a trial also gives a protocol for the doctors who are treating you. So for example, if I have a patient who goes on a clinical trial and I'm treating their lung cancer and I'm designing their radiation, I will go through the protocol because there'll be very specific instructions on how to design the radiation. And I think that's helpful for physicians because it's just another double check to make sure that all the steps are being done properly. But if you're lucky, you know, you'll go on a trial where the new treatment is quite beneficial. And we've seen that, for example, with the new advent of immunotherapy in the past five years, which has really changed the treatment of a lot of different cancers. But we didn't know that it was going to change the treatment five years ago. It was only available on trials. And some of the patients who went on these trials, they got this immunotherapy. We didn't know if it was going to help, but many of those patients were helped. And you can see them in the news, these, these, these people who went on the first trials of immunotherapy for melanoma, for example, they had an incurable melanoma. And then five years later, they're still doing well because they got the immunotherapy. These won't all be blockbusters, but sometimes they are. And even in the radiation world, we just, we just presented a study this year where we looked at using radiation to target metastases. Metastases mean that the cancer has spread. And we used the radiation to try to kill some, some spots of cancer that had spread, which normally you wouldn't do. And what we found was that, so when we ran the study, I'll just take a step back. We asked people, hey, do you want to go on this study? If you go on the study, some of you are going to get this experimental radiation and some of you are not. We don't know for sure that it's going to help. But fast forward now, and what we found was that we pretty much doubled the number of people who are alive five years later by doing this, this radiation that was considered experimental. So sometimes by going on a trial, you can really get access to a treatment that doctors think might be better. Wow, that's fantastic. So tell me what happens when you're a patient and you kind of decide in between the standard treatment and then the clinical trial. So um, how do you make that decision? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So often, there, there are a couple of different situations. So one situation is that there's a standard treatment and the clinical trial is completely different. There could be a completely different approach. And in, in that case, you really have to weigh the pros and cons. Are you a person who wants to go with something that's tried and true or to take your chances on something that might be a bit more helpful, but that might come with a cost of a bit more time involved for you for being on the study or maybe some side effects that we don't anticipate, right? So you have to sort of look into yourself to see how that resonates with you. And, and also the other benefit of going on the trial, of course, is that will help, it'll help future patients. But other trials, when you enter it, there are a couple of different treatments you might get where you are assigned to a treatment at random. So a computer flips a coin, and let's say you either get the standard treatment or 
the experimental treatment. You don't choose, the doctor doesn't choose. And sometimes patients can feel, well, I want to choose. I don't want a computer to choose for me. But what I say to patients is, is rest assured that the doctors are only trying this treatment in a clinical trial if they have good reason to believe that it's going to be helpful. You know, do, doing a trial for a physician costs years or decades of work and work that's often, you don't often get paid for doing a trial. It's just work that you're doing because you really think that it's going to help. And it's endless hours of paperwork and, and that sort of thing. Doctors only do trials that they really, really believe something's going to help. And so I think that can be reassuring that even if you can't choose your treatment by, by going on a trial, the doctors who are designing the treatment in the trial really do think it's going to help. They don't know that for sure, but they really do think that it's going to help. Yeah, you make such a fantastic point, David. And you know, this is actually one of the things that I love about oncology and, and just or everyone I've been through my personal experience, but also, of course, through my podcast. And people are so passionate about, you know, getting the best outcomes possible for people that, yeah, like, like you say, a lot of people are doing clinical trials precisely because they want to get the best result possible. Yeah, we, we want to do the best because, you know, our, our, our patients, many of them are also our friends or they're our family members or they're us, you know, and we really want to move things forward. We're never going to be happy with the status quo. No matter how much we move the bar, we're always going to want to do better. And it's interesting because people often ask me, what, you know, why do I do cancer research? Because cancer research sometimes doesn't, you can spend your whole career doing cancer research and not really make a huge change because sometimes experiments go well, sometimes they don't. Sometimes trials go well, sometimes they don't show a benefit. But what many of us think is that what we're doing here is we're, we're stepping up to the plate. We have our baseball bat. I know that cricket is probably bigger in the U.S. or in, in Australia than it is, than it is baseball, but, but I'll stick with the analogy nonetheless, but it's the same one. You're stepping to the plate and you have your bat and, and the ball is coming at you and you're going to swing and, and that's your research. And sometimes you'll swing and you'll, you'll have a hit, sometimes you'll have a home run, sometimes you will strike out. But at least what reassures many of us is that we, if we go to swing, if enough of us go to swing, we will have some hits. And we see some of the hits are, are small improvements. Some of the hits like the immunotherapy are, are, are big, big, big improvements. But in the end, even going up and taking that swing is worth it because although it costs us extra time and it's extra work, it really does, on the whole, make a difference for cancer patients. Yeah, that's perfect, David. And yes, the analogy totally checks out. <laughs> <laughs> so David, yes, um, love your book. Tell me, how did it come about? So... Mostly I do research, and I never thought that I would write uh, a book for, for patients, but life takes you on these turns, and you never exactly know how things are going to go. And I guess, Joe, if I asked you decades ago if you were going to be running this podcast about <laughs> getting good cancer treatment, you probably would say, say no, you would never envision that. And the way that my life twisted is that my best friend, uh, my best friend Bob, he was diagnosed with colon cancer, and that was five years ago. And um, Bob and I at the time were in our in our mid-30s, and he's a, Bob, Bob was a teacher. And so when he was diagnosed, he had a best friend who was an, an oncologist. And so I helped him make sure that he got the best treatment and he saw the best surgeons and that everything was looked after. He got copies of his reports and he got copies of his scans and we went through them all. And, and what Bob said to me at the time was that this was something that, that anybody could learn to do. You know, not everybody has an oncologist as a close friend. But even he, who was not in the medical profession, he was a teacher, so he's well-educated, but he didn't have a medical background. He was able to do this kind of stuff. And, and we re what we realized was that people really needed a step-by-step -step book on how to do this. And there are lots of books about cancer. There are thousands and thousands of books about cancer. But as far as we know, this is the only one that talks about getting good quality, good quality treatment. 
And then fast forward a few years, and there was actually, a, um, I guess, a mistake made in his care where things weren't done as they should. And, and basically what happened is that um, he was lost to follow-up, meaning that he was supposed to have been followed for a period of time, and, and, and he wasn't. And that un- unfortunately led to a bad outcome. Um, and we've lost Bob now. Bob has passed away. But in, in his last few years, he and I put this book together and I would write a chapter and he would read it and say, you know, Dave, this is, this is understandable. I understand this. He said, you know, Dave, this needs to be reworked. And so it really is a legacy for him, this book that hopefully will help other patients. Well, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your friend, David. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's such a uh, really noble goal. And that's kind of how it, you know, it actually reads to me as a conversation, as a conversation you'd have with someone. Yeah, and that, and that's how it came about. And, and and what I decided when I was writing the book, you know, people are selling everything online. You can go online and buy whatever you want. You know, people are selling things that that, that you know, people are selling IV vitamin C and 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 almond seeds or apricot seeds, which we know don't do anything. Um, people are making money off it. I didn't want this to be seen as that. And so, even though this is a commercially available book, all the royalties that instead of coming to me, they actually go directly to a cancer research charity in in a city that I live in which is called London. So none of the royalties come to me. So that allows me to to advocate for the book as much as possible and nobody will ever question us to whether there are financial motives cuz cuz obviously it's all been done for for charity. So I think that's helped to convince people that my motives are good and I'm just doing this to try to help cancer patients. Yeah, that's fantastic David. Good on you and thank you thank you for what you do in the world. Yeah, and thank you. And thanks for the thanks for the call. Joe. It's really been uh, enjoyable chatting today. Thanks so much, David. And um, tell me, what's the best way to find your book online? Yeah, so it's available on Amazon. That's probably the easiest. I don't know all the Australian uh, bookstores. Um, we all, I also have a website that goes with it. And the website is called qualitycancertreatment.com. And that has many resources that are quite helpful. It has some patient videos about how to decipher reports, um, how to keep track of your tests, how to keep track of your apartments, how to understand your radiation plan, how to find clinical trials. Those videos are freely available, so people can find that on the website, again, which is qualitycancertreatment.com. Fantastic. Thank you, David. Thanks very much. Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and thanks so much for listening. Listen, I just want to take a moment to really thank you for your time, because I know that it's precious, but also I want to congratulate you. I really want to congratulate you on listening to this podcast, because as we both know, cancer is incredibly hard to deal with, and you don't want to go it alone. And you want all the support and all the advice that you can get to, to stay on top of it, to stay on top of your worries during cancer. So I, I want to tell you about the tools that I have available on my website on simplifycancer.com that can really help you. So all of these tools are available under the tools menu on simplifycancer.com. So tool number one, that's the first visit oncologist checklist. So if the word oncologist bothers you, like I, I know it really freaked me out. If you are worried about your first appointment, as, as again, as we all are, then this can really help you with some key questions that you want to ask. The key thing, of course, is having a list like this means that you won't forget something important, which is easy enough to do when, when you've got a million things going through your head. Plus, it's a handy PDF, so it's easy to print and write down all the answers so you don't forget. 
So then there is the outcome map. Like this is a really simple but really powerful tool that I have developed to help you deal with worries about something specific, something that's bothering you right now. So maybe you're waiting for your test results and your mind's off running in a million different directions. Or maybe you've got an ache or pain and you don't know what it is. Like, is it cancer? Is that a side effect from treatment? Or maybe is that something else altogether? So it will kind of help you to put it all together so you can, you can get a bird's eye view and decide how to best deal with it. Number three is mastering your emotions during cancer. Now, this is a walk through all the stages that you go through as a patient and as a caregiver through anger and through guilt and fear and how you can address your needs, your emotional needs on every level during cancer. Like it came about after many discussions that I had with my friend and my colleague. Her name is Jill. Her husband had prostate cancer. So, uh, so she has this kind of caregiver's perspective. And we both like talked about how there are so many times, um, when you go through cancer, when you kind of just feel alone and you're struggling, you're on this roller coaster of emotions and it's kind of full on and it's hard to deal with. So there, there's an audio version that comes along with it. And there's a link to download the MP3 if that's what you want, or you can just listen to it online and, you know, and just uh, listen along with the PDF. So another one is testicular cancer support kit. This has a one page summary of what the testicular cancer journey looks like that you can check out for yourself or share with your family or friends. Like it's got a helicopter view of all the symptoms and treatments and who's involved and what happens when. And it's really great one kind of page view of like what happens during testicular cancer. Plus, the kit also includes like ready-to-go email templates for your family, friends, and your workmates. So you can kind of share what's what's happened. Maybe you want to break the news on cancer and you can, don't want to think about and wreck your brain on what to write. So you can just copy and paste. You can tweak it a little bit so to suit your personality and you're good to go. And I've also done the same thing for prostate cancer. So check out the prostate cancer support kit. Again, it's showing all the treatment options and stages on one page. So you can walk someone through it, like someone from your family or a friend. And they know what to expect and how it all happens. And of course, when you sign up for any of my tools, we just talked about you also get an email from me when, when there's a new episode that's kind of relevant to you right now and other news from the world of simplified cancer and listen i'm, I'm going to keep on asking you about how i'm doing here i mean are you getting what, you, what you're looking for was there something in particular that that really made sense to you or is there a question that you want to ask or maybe there's there's just something that you you want to get off your chest like please i need to know just reply to any of my emails or send me an email right now. My email is joe at simplifycancer.com. So that's J-O-E at simplifycancer.com. And send me an email whenever you've got anything on your mind. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Till next time. 